Welcome to Mindset in Motion, a podcast discussing the ideas, pathways, and innovation shaping the future of higher education. I'm your host, Bill Heinrich. This podcast is hosted by Orbis, supporting higher education and data-driven experiential learning. back with another episode of Mindset in Motion. I'm happy to be here with Emily Rayclaw from Marquette University. Emily is the director of On Your Mark, which provides individualized and targeted support for students focused on executive functioning, academic skills, and social and professional navigation. We're here to talk today about neurodiversity in the workplace and what it means for students with various forms of neurodiversity to transition from university and college to the workplace. Welcome, Emily. Thanks for coming. Happy to be here. Are you in Milwaukee today-ish? Yes, I'm in my new office today in Milwaukee. It's very large. I can do like cartwheels in it, so it's kind of fun. That's exciting. I hope that's an upgrade for you. It is. It's always nice to have a little breathing room in your physical spaces. Yeah. I'm coming to you from my home office in my basement in Hamilton, Ontario, so happy to be here. Uh, No cartwheels. If I stand up too fast, I'll bump my head. (laughs) Vertically challenged over here, so it's fine. Got it. Got it. So Emily, your background brings you to this work through a really interesting path. And I'd love for you to share a little bit about that, you know, a path that includes clinical work and counseling, special education, trio programs. So what kinds of experiences brought you to this role? So in my life, I've taken quite a few side quests. I got to college. I didn't really enjoy where I was attending college. And I thought, what's the fastest way I could graduate? And the advisor said, well, you could study abroad this semester and have a degree in German. And I said, absolutely, I'm doing that. I also happened to be strategic and I looked up and saw the master's program I wanted did not matter what your undergraduate degree was in. So I graduated college in three and a half years after changing my major six times, still graduated early, and then uh, got a master's degree in educational psychology, which focuses on community counseling, where I became eligible to be a licensed professional counselor. You would think I would have gotten my credential right then. I did not. I put that off to the side and ended up being a special education teacher. I started kind of counseling, working in a trio program for Upward Bound, and I really fell in love with the education piece and those first-gen low-income college students or potential college students and providing that support. Special education teaching was great. I loved working with the students. I loved like watching them grow and making changes and then sending them off to college. And then they would all come back and say, yeah, well, you know, I dropped out. There just wasn't the right level of support. And that's when I decided I'm absolutely going to work in higher ed. Turns out. The places of higher ed want you to have experience with adults, even though college students are kind of, they're like baby emerging adults, right? So I ended up working for Voc Rehab to build that experience. I was a vocational rehabilitation counselor for about two and a half years. And then I found a job at a two-year technical college, um, working for a trio program specifically for people with disabilities. That kind of got me into higher ed. And I was like, I love it here. I love higher ed. I love working with adults. And then I just happened, I just did not love the commute. And I saw this wonderful opportunity at Marquette where they were starting an autism program. And I said, I could do that in my sleep. I got the job. I started the same day the students did in fall of 2019. And it has evolved so much from day one to here. And as a neurodivergent person myself, I didn't find out until I was in my 30s. It also kind of explains all my side quests. Like all of this together, the culmination feels very much like this is exactly where I'm supposed to be. 
Wow. That's quite a journey. And I appreciate you sharing all the different ways you've practiced this work and all the different experiences that have led you here. I mean, that's in and of itself, some career advice for our listeners. <laughs> Think about, you know, how our experiences stack up to something. Yeah. Um, that, yeah change your really mind. Cool. It's fine. Yeah. Change your mind. Okay. I like it. I like it. We're always trying to do that. So tell me, like, how do you understand neurodiversity? Like, how do you explain that? How can we talk about that today? Yeah. So different types of diversity, and they think, okay, yet another one. Neurodiversity is very all-encompassing. It's part of who someone is. It's just my brain works a little differently than a neurotypical brain. Neurodiversity, by definition, includes things like autism, ADHD, dyslexia, dysgraphia, etc. But it's really, there's no discrimination about who can have any of those types of mental health conditions or neurological disconditions. So it's really just, for me, a very umbrella and very inclusive term. And I think that's something important people to think about is that the intersectionality of everyone's identities, it's not just, oh, yet another thing. It's we're considering all of these things because that's what makes somebody who they are. And you're working with students who identify in some way as neurodivergent in the university setting, in the college setting. And I want to draw this line for our listeners from, you know, college life to employment. So I want to talk about first, like, what are the kinds of experiences in college and university that you mentioned, you know, your students were dropping out? Like, what are the kinds of things that aren't supportive for students who identify as neurodivergent? I think part of it is just how the system works right now. And I don't really have a better solution at this point, but there is a big cliff in supports that happens between when a student leaves high school and goes to college, mostly because it's driven by law and it's two very separate laws. And I think as much as teachers, I know I've done it as a teacher, have tried to say, hey, things are going to look very different. And as much as universities have tried to say, this is what we can provide, until the students actually get there, they don't realize how much they're utilizing. That's not typically covered by Americans with Disabilities Act. So a lot of the supports that are typically provided in a college would be, you know, testing accommodation, classroom type accommodations, like those access pieces. In high school, they had a lot of success pieces. So what we do is really kind of try to bridge that gap. To be clear, we are not as involved or inclusive as high school is because there is a level of self-direction that needs to be taken. But sports like in executive functioning and social navigation and trying overall just to understand what college actually is that really doesn't exist right now. College is also just one very long transition. And once you get used to one thing, then you have to get used to another thing. And the next thing you know, they're telling you, okay, go out into the workforce. See you later. (laughs) Yeah. Let's talk about that. Like that's a big, I don't know, another cliff. Is that, is that the right idea? Well, I think the issue is like higher ed institutions, higher education, regardless of where you are, there is an assumed level of competence, right? Around what the culture of not just the university is, but what four-year universities are. So that also means like people who don't have prior exposure to higher ed, whether they're a first-generation student or an immigrant or neurodivergent, even if they're not first-gen, if they haven't experienced themselves, it's hard to truly understand what they're going into. And that's the struggle. Okay. So the socialization factors still really matter. The the kinds of work we can do ahead of time are going to help hopefully along the way. So what are the things you say or help your students understand in your work when they're thinking about post-college? A lot of the things I try to tell them is that even if you know how to do the skill of the work, you also need to understand the nature of the workplace. You need to understand the culture of that workspace, their social norms, and does that align with what you actually want? We always just say this very loose term of, you know, is it a good fit? You know, you're interviewing a candidate, but how would they fit in? What you're actually assessing is how would they blend in with what your current cultural setting is. 
Yeah. And so let me ask you maybe a question that wasn't on our list, but like, mm-hmm. why is your service only available to neurodivergent students? That I mean, sounds question. like pretty universally useful help. Yeah. I think how it's designed, it's very structured towards people with neurodivergence because there are things that people who are neurotypical can fake their way through and are better at adapting to because the fake it till you make it neurotypicals are fantastic at that. I am okay at it. My students I work with are horrible at it. So I just think in general, ideally, we wouldn't need programs like mine, right? Ideally, this would just be a culture shift and people would just start considering these things when they're interviewing people, when they're onboarding people. And then I don't want to be out of a job. I love my job, but I wouldn't, (laughs) you know. Yeah, it'd be nice if we didn't need some of the specialized kinds of service. Yeah, if the culture was accepting of folks Mm -hmm. in different ways. So what are the tips you give, like maybe to employers if they ask, like, how do I recruit neurodivergent students? I know there's yeah. students with lots of skills. How can I be supportive in my work environment? What are some of the things we talk about in that space? Well, I think the first thing is I really want people to understand the misconception that everyone who's neurodivergent loves STEM fields. I have so many students who are in human services or communications, poli-sci, looking into being educators, all of those things. So no matter what field you're in, people who are neurodivergent are in those fields. I think something that would be really great is depending on how we're doing our job descriptions, right? Are we making a a Christmas wish list or whatever kind of wish list for who this ideal candidate is? Or are we actually writing our descriptions to say what the job is? Does the job description actually match what you need the person to do? And thinking about then how are we interviewing? In general, I can sell myself in any interview. It is a skill that I have. Not everyone has it. Neurotypical and neurodivergent or not, not everyone has that skill. But depending on what you're hiring for, what does your interview process look like, right? I know when I was interviewing for teaching jobs, I think a lot of those places do a really good job of saying, okay, give me a demo lesson, come in and do this, come and do these things. And I think in other sectors, it's like, okay, tell me what you want to do in five years. If you were could be a fruit, what would it be? That doesn't give anyone the opportunity to actually demonstrate their skills. And so people who can just pretend it and fake it they're often really easy to hire versus those that know the skill and don't interview as well. Some language would give that an hire as like skills-based hiring versus degrees-based hiring or credentials-based hiring. Yeah, so that's an interesting... just a combination, right? Like a combination of those things. Yeah, wh- one of the challenges we're facing is that a lot of you know companies will attach themselves to a particular campus based on a program and, and simply hire students from that campus, you know, without checking as deeply for skills from students from other campuses or other kinds of institutions. So, you know, that's definitely a priority we want to think about. Are there solutions or are there tools in in things like universal design for learning, like that employers could adopt or adapt to make it a little bit more comfortable for those transitions? Absolutely. Universal design is one of my favorite things. That's one of my favorite things I learned about when I was going to school to be an educator. And even now, I think the important thing to realize is that by using universal design, you are making things easier for everybody, including yourself. It could remove many barriers for any type of employee, whatever diversity, whatever identities they're bringing in. So for an example, I think about when you're going to skip past interview part and just think about when you're bringing in a brand new employee, you've hired them, they've accepted their offer. How are we onboarding them? I think in general, companies do a good job of saying, here's what your job is. Here are the people you work with every day. Here's your boss. This is your schedule. Okay, good luck. But I don't think we do a very good job of saying, okay, on staff, when it's someone's birthday, this is what we do. When there's a celebration, this is what it is. If this person asks you and this person says, hey, we're going to happy hour or whatever it is, 
that's not negotiable. It's not a suggestion. It is a we are going. We don't talk about those protocols and those social norms that are happening, even when people like shift teams. And it's yeah. those pieces that keep people employed or get them on the first in the chopping block to say goodbye because they're not a good fit. Some of the, yeah, some of the social cues around how we work and how we collaborate, even how we communicate and share information. Right. Yeah. I think it doesn't take that much for the people who are working in team to sit down and say, okay, we're working on this project. Are we going to use Slack? Are we going to use email? Or are we going to have meetings? And really everyone stick to those agreements to keep them running smoother. But I think just the idea of doing that and taking the time in the beginning, you're going to have happier employees. You're going to feel better at your work because you would know the expectations are super clear. And this stuff can be subtle too. I read a, I mean, I remember a paper I read, it was around organizations and culture. And the person interviewed was saying that if the time on the flyer said nine o'clock with nine colon zero zero, that meant nine o'clock. If the sign said 9 a.m. without the colon zero zero, then it was a soft start. And that could, you could come in sort of casually late, but that stuff's really hard to notice. I mean, yeah, that was less subtle. That's just like, you have to know, but also, why are we saying meetings start at nine and then really wanting everyone to be there at 845? Right. Rito, right. why are we communicating, hey, meeting's going to start at nine, arrive by 845 to prepare and review these documents. Thank you. I don't know. Or or could we just write that down, I think is your point. Right, right. Can we just put that out yeah. there like, not yeah. and not just have everyone guess what's the appropriate time to show up? You know, I have a kiddo who has an IEP, right? And so mm -hmm. the idea framework is something... I'm familiar with, I'm familiar with how that legally is supposed to help teachers support my child. I know what I can ask for and what I can't. Does that exist for, you know, kids who go to university or, you know, young adults who go to university? And then is there something else that exists for, you know, folks going into the workforce? Are there like legal frameworks? So I think the biggest shift, the good news is you have to make one shift. You move from IDEA to ADA, but you're switching from the hard part is you're switching from success to access. Right. Okay. So the idea when for, if a student has an IEP in the K-12 setting, the idea is not just access. The idea is success. Okay. So getting all these additional supports put in place, they might modify curriculum, all of those things to ensure that student success in the K-12 setting. Now they're coming to college and college says, that's great that you had all that support. Now the law that covers you is just about access. So we will do what we need to do to make the curriculum and the environment accessible to you. You know, we look at things like curb cutouts, elevators, if they're, you know, um, interpreters, extended time on exams and quizzes, just those things that make it accessible. Versus like in K-12, you know, the students are have someone's going to come one-on-one -on -one and do this and someone's going to come and do this. That doesn't really exist in the higher ed. I think part of part is when they transition out into the workforce, I feel like a lot of employers make it kind of a secret on how to access accommodations. I mean, I get it from a legal standpoint, people get like, kind of like, well, you don't want to assume someone has a disability, right? But also, I don't want to assume that I'm not going to go skiing someday and somehow break both my legs and still have to go to work. I need a temporary accommodation. And, you know, I shouldn't have to go through leaps. Like, I think if we shift from that perspective and say for every employee, when you're onboarding, we want you to understand what the process is for getting accommodations. And maybe even at your reviews with your employees, you're saying, hey, as a reminder, this process got updated. That process is still the same, just so everyone has the same information. I think yeah. that would be super helpful. 
that makes a lot of sense. I mean, my bank asked me to update my address for my direct deposit. Like, why can't I update my accessibility needs that week as well or something right. like that? Yeah. Or right. just okay. clicking the button that you understand how to, like, you know, it's kind of like that check when your employer sends out a new handbook or whatever new uh-huh. thing is, you have to acknowledge that you saw it. Yeah. Basic access to the access mm-hmm. question or regular access to it. Okay. I like it. I, I appreciate that. Going a little further, like, how will we know? we're doing a good job if we're an employer, like what will employees say or feel when their neurodivergence is accounted for? Okay. And this sounds really cheesy and trite, but the answer is retention, right? Okay. Retention and referrals. For me I and my employer, my neurodivergence is accounted for in many ways. I have a schedule that I control. I can brainstorm as grand as I want for an idea until I get to the right place and then circle back. People are really good at doing meetings that could be emails and actually doing them in emails. When employees, regardless of difference, can bring their whole professional self into your workplace and be recognized and rewarded for that, you are going to get those numbers that we're looking for. I know turnover is huge right now. People aren't saying, I mean, I'm not that old, but like, you know, in my parents' generation, you got one job and you didn't leave. People around my age, we're not doing that. People younger than me are twitching jobs even more frequently and just go into the next highest better. But if you can provide those environments, that's going to make the difference for keeping employees and that overall brings costs down. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, you know, what are some of the challenges like you face that are harder than the regular challenges of neurodiversity? Meetings are so hard for me. My personal, the way my ADHD is set up, my processing speed is incredibly fast. When I got my assessment done, the second neuropsychologist that did it, was shocked. She had never seen anyone finish that portion of the test before with time to spare. And that's me. So you can imagine in a brainstorming session or in a problem solving session, I'm six steps ahead and I've already solved this problem. And now I'm bored because people are talking in circles and I already have the solution. And I have said that solution 10 minutes ago and we are still on the same topic, right? So I didn't, wasn't aware of the face I was making. And so a couple of times I got talked to you about the face I was making. One time in a meeting, someone said, Emily, you seem bored. I said, well, I just feel like we've been wasting a lot of time when a solution was presented 10 minutes ago. And instead of talking about it, we're still pontificating on what the problem is. That didn't go over very well. But it's a struggle for me. So now I've gotten better at if I've already had the solution in my brain, I have to zone out. Turning my camera off has been phenomenal in virtual meetings so I can move on to the next thing. And when I hear the next topic that I know I need to participate in, I can turn my camera back on. I'm like, okay. I had that time to absorb. I think also my organization system, um, I just got a part-time coordinator for my program and I just realized how much of my program lives in my brain. Even though I have pages and pages and documents and documents of stuff written down, I realized how much is up here and it's organized in my filing system. And someone asked a question like, oh, well, obviously the answer is this. I also live by checklists. With you, I was saying, if it's not on my calendar, it doesn't exist. And so... I've missed meetings. I've missed deadlines because I didn't set myself up for success. So these are some challenges and tips. I appreciate you putting those two things together. This is great. This is really compelling. I'm getting an education here too. And I appreciate you sharing how your personal version of neurodivergence works. And, you know, to your point earlier, you said it's a very individual set of expressions. And I think that's what we're hearing here. So as you proceed in this work, how has your mindset about your work changed over the course of engaging professionally in supporting neurodivergent students? There's an extreme flaw in how we onboard people into new systems from kindergarten into the workplace, 
into marriages, into whatever, we do a really poor job of onboarding people. We talk about things in theory. You know, I don't remember my first day of kindergarten. I don't know if you remember your first day of kindergarten, probably not, but maybe you remember your kid's first day, right? And so you come in and they had that welcome day and they walked them through the procedure. I feel like that was the last time I remember being properly oriented to something, right? And then we're just supposed to build on that. But every teacher has different expectations, mm -hmm. right? So even just aside from that, what it comes down to is that every place that I've interacted with, no one has really done the tough work of talking about what's negotiable versus what's non-negotiable. And as a result, everybody's just kind of doing whatever they think is the best thing. And so it's just organized chaos. And so how can I help my students and help the young people I work with navigate the organized chaos that will be different in every single situation they walk into? Yeah, we've got to develop those adaptation skills that are persistent and can work in different environments. That's really powerful. Thanks, Emily. What did I miss asking about? What do you want to share that I didn't quite get to? Um, I think the biggest thing is just remembering that, again, it's not another identity. It is allowing someone to bring their full self. Even if somebody hasn't said anything, there's probably three or four, five, six neurodivergent people in your office who are making it work. It might be the person like me who has music on all the time, different sticky notes on the wall on different sections trying to figure out what goes where, who does things a little differently. So whether or not you have a workplace that's ready for it, we're already here. Great thoughts there to end on. Thanks, Emily. Emily Rayclaw from Marquette University works with On Your Mark. Thanks for coming on Mindset in Motion today. If you have questions for me or just want to talk about your institution, connect with me at bheinrich at orbiscommunications.com or check out our website at orbiscommunications.com.